Thank you, Gary. <clears throat> Good morning, everybody. Uh, glad you're here today. I had a conversation with my parents this past week, and in that conversation, I was reminded of something that my mom had told me some, uh, some time ago about what it was like growing up in her house as a child. So she was in high school. We, it, it was just sort of past World War II, and her dad kept telling her something again and again that really affected what her life was like. He kept saying, you know, her name's Kay. He said, you know, Kay, I really don't know why you're working so hard in high school. Because he said, the world is going to end. Christ is going to come back way before you ever get out of high school. And I don't see why you're even bothering, really. Now, that deeply affected her. And she told me again this past week, she said, Chad, I walked around day to day in that high school questioning myself why I was there, why was I doing what I was doing, because Christ was going to come back immediately, and there was really no point in going on with my education. She said, I lived with that every single day. She just turned 84 not too long ago, and we're all still here. Now, this is nothing new. I'm getting again to the theme very early here. There's a history of this, guessing and wondering when is it that Christ is going to come back. As a matter of fact, uh, when you go through uh, history, virtually since Christ ascended, even though he told his people that even he didn't know when he was going to come back, interestingly, it's the one thing Christ said that he willingly did not know is the hour of his return People have still been guessing, smart people. A few examples have been recorded, even from the previous millennium. For example, in 847, Theoda was a Christian who declared that in, in 847, the world was going to end that year, though later he confessed his prediction was fraudulent. He was publicly flogged. <clears throat> I don't know, maybe that should happen more often. Then in the years from 992 to 995, there were various Christians. Uh, in those years, Good Friday coincided with the Feast of the Annunciation, and this had long been believed to be the event that would bring forth the Antichrist, and thus the world would end in three years. And then in the year 1000, this is interesting, Pope Sylvester II and others, according to several different sources, various Christian clerics predicted this date as the millennium including Pope Sylvester II. And as a result, riots are said to have occurred in Europe. Pilgrims headed east to Jerusalem. You could call that Y1K. <laughs> Others, Irenaeus from the Church Fathers, Martin Luther, even Jonathan Edwards made similar kinds of predictions. Now, I grew up in circles, these were fundamentalist circles, that were pretty much obsessed that the end was really, really near. I heard about it all the time. Uh, and, and there were various occasions. I remember when Gorbachev was considered the Antichrist because of the birthmark he had on his forehead. Uh, Russia was Gog and Magog. I remember a camp counselor telling me that IBM's number was 666. Whatever, however you, that was their number. Now, I don't know how you figure that. Um, 
that I, I remember that the collapse of the U.S. dollar was going to bring about the end times. Then the, it was the Gulf War of the early 90s, and it was Y2K, if you know the Left Behind series. Both Jenkins and LaHaye said that the year 2000 would bring, bring about the collapse of the U.S. dollar and give rise to the Antichrist. Then it was September 11th. Then it was the housing crash. Then it was the end of the Mayan calendar. Remember 2012? Then there were the blood moons of 2014. And now we have civil unrest and a coronavirus. And again, it's the similar kinds of predictions. The same stories, frankly, keep circulating. And it hits this question I, that I want to talk about. Well, how do I live in anticipation of Christ's return? The Bible does have a lot to say about the end times. And how do I live in anticipating that? And I want to start this morning with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Again, a group of people who themselves struggling with whether or not this was the end, and Paul was addressing them on that. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. You may be seated. And this morning we're finished this, finishing this series up called Nothing New. There's been a number of events going on in a rapidly changing culture. And I've been addressing this over the past several weeks. We've dealt with subjects such as, as racism and the pandemic. How do we respond to the pandemic? Identity politics. And now this topic of whether or not we're living, and can we know, and should we speculate about whether or not we're living in the end times. And as you saw before, this is not a new subject. I'm borrowing that phrase, nothing new, from the writer of Ecclesiastes, who said there's nothing new under the sun. And frankly, what we're hearing now is nothing new under the sun. And this morning we're talking about this subject of speculation. Well, when will Christ return? And someday, according to how I believe the end times will play out, Jesus is going to return. I do believe, as it says back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that the church will be caught up in the air in this event called the rapture. Christians who are living at the time of this return will be caught up. Those who had already died in Christ will be resurrected. They'll be caught up with Christ in the air. That'll bring about a seven-year time of tribulation. During that time, the Antichrist will rise up. Those events of revelation are going to transpire. 
It's foretold way back in the, in the book of Daniel. And I believe that's how things will go down. I do like what David Jeremiah said about this, though. He said, that's the way I believe things are going to happen until they don't happen that way. He said, at which time I'll believe something else. So the Bible does have a lot to say about the end times, but the problem we can run into is when we begin to speculate about when it will be, attempting to take current events and fit them into the biblical narrative as they're describing the Bible. As it turns out, again, this is not new. It's been going on for a long time, uh, so much so that this church that we're reading about, this church in Thessalonica, was really falling into the same kind of pattern. People had a lot of confusion about the nature of Christ's return. At one point, there were those who were even afraid that they missed it. So this morning, I want to answer uh, that initial question and, and go, about the, go about it like this, going through these three questions. First of all, well, what are the problems with speculating about Christ's return? And then secondly, what are the consequences of speculating about Christ's return? And finally, well, then how do I live in anticipation of Christ's return? So we'll walk through these three questions. I want to start out first, say, well, what are the problems with speculating about this? And we'll start out with that passage we just read and answer that first question. So let's go back and look at verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So first of all, we see that the season of Christ's return is unknown. Uh, the season itself is unknown. Now, a season is a fair bit of time. It's not just like a, a snap of the fingers. So throughout this passage, there's this reference to the day of the Lord. Now, now what does that mean? Because I'm talking about spans of years, but throughout the scriptures, there's a reference to the day of the Lord. Now, that's speaking to a time of judgment. There have been other days of the Lord. If you go back to the Old Testament, the Israelites encountered the day of the Lord. When the Babylonians came in and, and took them away and conquered them, that was a day of the Lord. That was a time of punishment, of God's mediated uh, judgment that came down. Now, here in the New Testament, when they're talking about the day of the Lord, they're talking about this coming season, this coming time, this final day of the Lord, when God will bring final judgment on mankind. And it goes beyond just a single day. You could think of it as a, as a period of time, a, a season. Uh, again, I believe this is referring to this seven-year tribulation that's going to happen uh, when believers who are living again will be caught up in the air to be with Christ. After seven years, Christ will come fully down, down to earth. The first time he only comes partway down, rapture, Seven years later, he fully comes down and he sets up his kingdom on earth. So in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says that this destruction is going to come suddenly. It's like a thief in the night. He says we won't even know the times or the seasons. Now, you can illustrate it this way in, in regard to this time of not knowing the times or seasons. Some places in Scripture talks about the day and the hour, but here it's, it's talking more generally about we don't even know the times or the seasons, okay? So uh, think about a group of scientists that tell you that right now there's a satellite orbiting the earth and that that satellite is is going to come down it's starting to get closer 
But they admit in the process that now we don't know when the satellite's going to come down. We don't know where it's coming down. As a matter of fact, we have no idea when it's going to come down. Just that at some point, the satellite is going to come down to earth. That's a similar kind of statement that we have here in 1 Thessalonians. Paul's communicating that we can, we can neither be precise nor general in our estimation of when the day of the Lord will begin. Now, see, that's the challenge when we look at specific events and try to pinpoint, well, this is when it's going to be. This is the marker. This coronavirus is the marker that it's the end. So the general time period is unknown. And we find a second problem in verse 3. It says there, while people are saying there is peace and security... Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So this next problem is the moment of Christ's return is unexpected. The moment of Christ's return is unexpected. As a matter of fact, Paul's saying that the day of the Lord will come. People are feeling like there's, they'll feel like there's what? They're going to feel like there's peace and security going on. It's not going to be in a moment of sort of horror and turmoil. So Jesus says something very similar to this. If we look back at Matthew chapter 24, and look at verses 36 through 39. This is Christ speaking. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. Referring to himself, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in, and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, that, that, that's anything like what we have going on right now, I feel like. Uh, as a matter of fact, this COVID and the civil unrest seem to have had the opposite effect. Things have been delayed. Uh, weddings have been delayed. So this time seems quite the opposite. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, but this is like stage setting. I mean, this is the stage being set all the, for all the bad things that are to come. You know, the, the one world government and the Antichrist and the mark of the beast. Well, you could say that about the past 2,000 years. I like the way one uh, theologian puts this. This is a guy by the name of Michael Spiegel. Who, he's the, right now he's the chair of theology at Dallas Seminary. He sort of specializes in the end times. And he makes this comment. He says that at some point, events in our world will immediately proceed and I suppose set the stage for the day of the Lord in some way. And nobody can know for sure whether today's events fall into that unique category. This fact, however, would be utterly unknowable and completely irrelevant. Theologically speaking, everything that has occurred in history from Christ's ascension forward can be viewed as in some way setting the stage for the future tribulation. Events of history are connected in a complex web of cause and effect, all under the providence and sovereignty of God. The prophet Daniel said that God changes times and seasons, he deposes kings and raises up others. Now, in addition to there being problems with trying to, to figure out if the stage is being set, 
uh, there's consequences to this as well. And let me just start out by saying, I, look, I, it, I'm, as fa- I'm as fascinated as anybody about what's going on in the world and whether or not this is it. I, I say that up front. I remember being an engineer <clears throat> years ago, working in engineering, sitting in a cubicle, pouring over thousands of spreadsheets. Now, some people, this is what they live for. It wasn't me so much. So what I would find out I would do is, let's just see what's going on in the world. Let's just see if maybe this is it. Frankly, I didn't want to look at spreadsheets anymore. So this was a sort of escapism. Uh, and I get it, right? We kinda, we're kind of ready to go to heaven. We're kind of ready for what comes next. I think it's going to be a whole lot better than it is right now. Amen. Amen. Can I get a witness? <laughs> and it is exciting to see that you're, thinking, that you're seeing your faith come alive in daily newscasts. And I get it, but it, but it can also lead to some, some real uh, consequences. And the first of these is, frankly, it causes ridicule. Uh, it causes ridicule. You may remember uh, Y2K. That was going to be it. But then Y2K came and went, and all those other events that I had mentioned before. And then there was something much more serious that happened in 1992. Now, you may or may not uh, remember this or have heard about it. This happened in Korea. Uh, It was a group of Christians in Korea that were convinced that the rapture was about to happen. And this was was chronicled in an article in the L.A. Times. As a matter of fact, the the day after, supposedly, the rapture was supposed to take place, they they wrote this article. And it said this, For hundreds of followers of the Dami mission in Seoul, the most amazing thing about the day is that it arrived. The phenomenon known as the rapture, prophesied in the book of Revelation, set off a social crisis in South Korea, as scores of believers sold their homes, quit their jobs, abandoned their families, and underwent abortions to prepare for the one-way ride to heaven. This does not obviously help the cause of Christ. This does not help Christians one bit. It makes Christians look untrustworthy. It makes them look naive. It makes them, frankly, look crazy. I was, uh, by the way, I was at a conference back in 2017 on the book of Revelation. And this kind of response, and I know this is extreme, but these responses to the end times are a huge turnoff to younger generations when it comes to Christianity. They do not have the same sort of draw to this as many people have had in the past. So... A second issue that comes up is that it wastes time and resources. It wastes time and resources. Back in 1991, when the Gulf War broke out, there were scads and scads of end times books that started coming out. Um, And and frankly, millions of dollars were being made off of these. Uh, There was an article that appeared in the Chicago Tribune under the headline, Prophecy Books Survive War's End. Because even after the word ended, people were still buying a lot of these books. The the article goes on to say, interest in the Gulf War may have waned since the ceasefire, but readers concerned whether the war brought us one step closer to the end of the world are still buying books on the last days in record numbers. Books such as Armageddon, Oil in the Middle East Crisis, and the Rise of Babylon are pulling in big profits for publishers and booksellers. Now, you can buy these. You can buy a, a thousand of these for 10 cents on Amazon now. 
Because clearly, again, here we are. And it, it just doesn't seem like a good use of money and resources that God has given us. So it, it, it can waste these things. And then third, uh, it feeds a crisis mentality. It feeds a crisis mentality. And what does that mean? It means that when there's new information about a war or about an earthquake or about the borders being uh, redrawn in, in places like Europe, you know, people are prompted to ask the question, well, is this going to be the end of the age? But then they keep looking for the next crisis. Uh, one commentator in the book of Romans, a guy named Douglas Moo, he, he captured this really well. He said, by doing so, they imply that Christ's return can be imminent only if the signs, as they interpret them, of course, are in place. The danger is that Christians will adopt the appropriate end times mindset only in times of crisis and pay less attention, if any, at other times. At any point, Christ's coming could just be like this, could happen in the next second. We don't know. Christ himself didn't know. But we always want to be living, even in the, when there's peace and security. As a matter of fact, much more when there's times of peace and security, that Christ's coming could be imminent. Now, this doesn't seem at all to be what Paul's saying. Uh, Paul is saying that it may be at just these times of, when, when the times of crises have passed, that Christ can return. So, frankly, in a time like this, it seems less likely that Jesus would come back. And then one more consequence of speculation about when Christ will return. Um, it makes for mark of the beast misunderstandings. It makes for mark of the beast misunderstandings. I want to take a little, a really short excursus on this topic for just a moment. I want to go to Revelation chapter 13 and, and look at verses 16 through 18. Revelation 13, 16 through 18. And there it says, also it causes all. This is referring to the beast uh, that comes up in uh, chapter 13 and people were worshiping this beast it says also it causes all both great small and great both rich and poor both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name this calls for wisdom let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of man and his number is 666 to say there have been a lot of ideas on what this mark of the beast is, is an understatement. People have been trying to calculate this. They thought it was a number for Nero. If you take the, the letters, uh, the, Latin, um, the Latin name of Nero and add up the letters in some way, it adds up in some, somewhere close to this. But some people even say, no, it adds up to 616. Uh, people have speculated it's because man has been appointed to work six days that this is the number of man. And they've come up with all kinds of crazy ideas about what this mark of the beast is. Um, but one thing to consider, uh, in the view of the end times that I have espoused here, the mark of the beast doesn't happen until the last half of the tribulation, the final three and a half years. And again, there's been, in, in my lifetime, and in your lifetimes too, you've heard a lot of speculation. I mentioned earlier that it was supposedly the number for IBM, and then it was, it was social security numbers. It was UPC codes. Uh, and most lately, some have said, well, it's got something to do with the COVID vaccine or some kind of a tracking mechanism. 
So keep in mind, in, in this particular view of the end times, Christians will be raptured to the point before, they'll be raptured before this mark of the beast comes about. And, and this is I, what I believe is most important to understand about the mark of the beast. That in some way, before you can take the mark of the beast, you have to deny your faith as a Christian. Now, that, I hope, gives you some sense of peace as far as accidentally taking the mark of the beast. No, the only way you will be able, a person would be able to take the mark of the beast is if they have denied their faith in Jesus Christ. Because this person is actively worshiping these, these evil characters, these, these beasts that arise. There's a first beast that's a political leader. There's a second beast uh, who's a, a, a false prophet. You are worshiping them and worshiping the dragon. It's a, it's a symbolism for Satan who's giving them power. That, that's the mark of the beast. But all of these are consequences of end times speculation. So I want to come to that question we started with. Well, how do I live in anticipation of Christ's return? And, and Paul gets very specific in this passage with three commands. Uh, how do I live in anticipation? First of all, he says, be alert. Be alert. Verse 6, so then let us not sleep as, other do, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. He uses this imagery of, a, of someone not falling asleep. He says people have fallen asleep, and, and what does that mean? Well, just practically speaking... This is about combining a, a short-term attitude with long-term planning. So we as Christians need to keep a short-term attitude in that we have no idea when we're going to go home, either by, by death or by rapture. We frankly just don't know. It's in God's hands. You know, Jesus told a parable uh, talking about a certain rich man. And he's talking about this certain rich man in Luke chapter 12. And uh, this man says to himself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But yet that very night he was called to meet God. So this man has the opposite attitude of what Paul's talking about here. He forgot that the future's in God's hands, it's not in his own. And to summarize, Paul wants us to plan and minister for the long haul, but he's, he wants you to have the attitude like the one that's shared in James if it is God's will, I will do such and such. Lord willing, I will do such and such. And then there's so many who are not with the program. These people who are asleep. They're not even aware that there's a, a race going on, that we Christians are running, that we're running a race to get a prize for the reward that we'll receive in heaven. And, but there's these people that are asleep. They don't even know there's a race going on. Don't be like them. Short-term attitude, we don't know how much longer we have, but long-term planning. We are planning for the long haul. Be sober. Someday Christ will return. Be alert to that fact. And then secondly, be disciplined. Be disciplined. We get some of this in verse 6, the call to be sober and alert, but then look in verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, Paul's using the imagery of a soldier here, a disciplined soldier who's, who's prepared. Uh, he's speaking of the day when Christ returns, and, 
And we're standing on this threshold all the time of a day that will bring joy to us but destruction to a whole lot of people. And we're always standing on that threshold. And he says that we are to be guarding ourselves with faith in God and love for others. Faith guards us inwardly. And he says, love others outwardly. Choose to love other people outwardly. It's not all about a feeling. Choose to love others. And then finally, he says, be encouraged. Be encouraged. This comes from verses uh, 9 through 11, um, starting in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, as a result of this, uh, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So he's commending them. He's, he's saying you are building each other up. Be encouraged by this. Now, this kind of reminds me of the guy who, uh, who's a big sports fan, and he always tapes the football games whenever he can't watch them. So he goes, and some people may rewind all the way to the beginning of the game, avoiding anybody so they don't tell them who won. But this guy, he goes right to the end of the game to see what the score is. And if his team wins, then he'll go back to the very beginning because he can watch with hope because he knows how the game is going to end. See, we know how the game is going to end. We know what's going to happen. We have this eternal hope that Jesus Christ has given us by virtue of his death and resurrection and trusting in that, we know how the game is going to end for us. We need not worry about what's going to happen. Be encouraged by that. So I want to close with this idea. Anticipate Christ's return with a short-term attitude and a long-term plan. Keep that short-term attitude. Life's going to be short. By one way or another, we're going to have fewer days today than we did yesterday. To keep that long-term plan in effect, as a church, we need to be planning for the future. As a church, we need to be planning for the future generations. I'm going to close with this story about uh, something John F. Kennedy would always close his speeches with uh, during his presidential campaign back in 1960 would often refer to something that was said by Colonel Davenport. Uh, Colonel Davenport was the speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives back in the 1700s. And one day back in 1789, he and his staff, they, they looked out the window and the, the sky just darkened ominously. I mean, it got so black, they'd never seen anything like this, that many have thought that the, the end was nigh that this was going to be it. And then Davenport himself, he rose up and he says this, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I wish that candles be brought in. Rather than fearing what is to come, let's continue being lights in a world that desperately needs to see Christians living out their faith. Please pray with me.
Lord Jesus, we are eager, we are eagerly anticipating your return. We don't know when it's going to be. We don't know if the events going on right now will immediately precede your coming or if it will be another thousand years. Lord, I pray that we would be about the duty that you've given us, that we would be alert, that we would be disciplined, and that we would be encouraged, knowing that we will get to see you soon, one way or another. God, I pray that, that we wouldn't give in to being so caught up in current events and trying to jigsaw them into the, the biblical record, that we would miss the greater truths, that we would be lights to a lost world. And I ask this all in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.